Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I'm going to be reading from Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have chosen to communicate to us your church. Um, You've chosen to reveal yourself, not only, Lord, in general revelation through nature and through our conscience, but Lord, you've chosen to reveal yourself in special revelation in your word to make it crystal clear who you are and how you work among us. We thank you for the pen of the Apostle Paul and the work of his amanuensis who actually wrote this as he dictated it. We thank you for the work that they did, his boldness, his desire to communicate to the church at Rome. And Lord, to make clear to the Jews and the Gentiles there who were in the faith of Christ, to make clear to them, Lord, the gospel, to so clearly lay it out for so many chapters. And Lord, that that letter was circulated and now it comes to us. What an incredible gift that is. And we're thankful for it. Help us to be just focused on you, our minds and hearts to be illumined as we hear from your word. And Lord, help us to be humbled by it. I think of this morning and the text we're dealing with, Lord, and how radically man-centered we often are and how radically God-centered you are. Lord, I pray that you would humble us and that we would see you as you wish to be seen. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when you, when you read the Gospels, who do you notice? And you've, most of the people in here, I'm sure, have read the Gospels or heard Gospel stories or at least some, seen some sort of Jesus film. And they've seen, at least at Easter, and you see the people who are attracted to Jesus. And who are they? Who are the people that are attracted to Jesus? The rejects, the people who follow him, who are attracted to him, are the people who we might consider the dregs of society. They certainly were considered that then. They're the prostitutes. They're the tax collectors. If you don't know, the tax collectors were basically traitors who, in most people's minds, were stealing money from the Jews for their own personal benefit. They thought they were horrible people. They were all the people that none of us would want to have anything to do with. That, that's who they were. That's who followed Jesus. And who were the people who weren't attracted to him? The people who wanted to stay away from him 
were the righteous Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes, weren't they? The people who wanted to be around Jesus were the poor and the weak and the destitute and the lowly and the rejects and the outcasts of society. And the people who didn't want to be around Jesus were the religious. They were the people who went to church every week or synagogue every Saturday. They're the people who read the law. They were the socially acceptable. They were the morally upright. They were the people who were middle class. They were the ones who everybody liked. Those are the people who didn't want to be around Jesus. They are the ones who rejected him. They were the men that that were self-disciplined and successful. They were the men that towed the line. Those were the guys, the college-bound types, the college grads, the academics, all of them were rejecting Jesus. So why is it then that in American evangelicalism and the American Christian church, that our churches are primarily filled with religious types. Why is that? Primarily filled with those who are self-righteous. Why is it the American church attracts predominantly the middle class, the fairly moral family types? Those who send their kids to Christian schools and homeschool. Those who have it together, the businessmen, the socially acceptable, those who are well-liked. What is it about our churches in America, systemically, that has caused us to attract the crowd that rejected Jesus and has caused us to repel the crowd that embraced him? I mean, he's the head of the church, of which we're his body. How are we not representing our head well? I think the answer is that we're not proclaiming the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. I think that's the answer. Honestly, I think for the most part, we're not proclaiming the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. Somewhere along the line, we ceased preaching a gospel that offends the righteous and welcomes the sinners. Somewhere along the line, we stopped preaching the gospel of God's grace. And at some point, we started preaching the gospel as God's new law. We started preaching a gospel not of salvation for sinners by the free grace of God, but of salvation for the righteous by the good work of believing. We turned our faith into a work that earns us God's favor. We turn the command to believe in Christ into a law that if kept merits us favor with God and we kept it. And we look down at those unrighteous, sinful people who lack the requisite self-discipline to keep up the good work of believing. In other words, our work of believing is what we view as saving, not Christ's work of atoning for our sins. Did you hear that? Our work of believing is what we have viewed as saving. Not Christ's work of atoning for our sins. Therefore, when Jesus came, we pharisaical types flipped the whole gospel on its head. 
We thought God wants us to add believing in Jesus to the list of things we do to earn God's favor. And we said we could do it. He had 10 commandments, now he's got 11. The 11th one is believe in Jesus. I can do that too. So we began to pat ourselves on the back for believing. Began to look down at those who don't believe. And honestly, if you look down as weak, down deep inside yourselves, as either weak or not too bright or lacking in self-discipline or some other sort of poor attribute in them. We may not say these things, I think, but deep down we believe them. When I look at my unbelieving neighbor and their sinful lifestyle, honestly, I think, why would they want to live like that? I honestly think that. Obviously, they don't get it. That goes through my mind. They obviously don't get it. They've gone so far out there in their sin that it would take a real miracle to save them. As if it took a minor one to save me. I look around at other people's mistakes and think their sinfulness and mistakes are far different than my own. When I hear the Bible tell me how deeply my sin offends God, I mean, Russell talked about it this morning and last week. When I hear the Bible talk about how deeply my sin offends God and how all my righteous acts, according to Isaiah, are but minstrel cloths, every good work I try to do is but a minstrel cloth, I actually get a little perturbed. I don't know about you. I get a little disturbed by that. How could that be? I'm certainly not that bad. Why do they keep saying I'm so wicked and evil? I don't deserve to hear that. I'm no adulterer. I've been good. I've gone to church for years. I've given my money. I've served at the church. I've gone on mission trips. I've believed for years. I deserve God's mercy. I've earned it. Well, I mean, I really know it's all by grace because I'm a wicked sinner And I'm believing that, so that merits my salvation. Well, I I don't know what it means, but somehow it gets me salvation. Because somehow my belief is what I think is saving me. We fail to understand that salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is not something merited by our belief. Faith is not a good work. To believe in Jesus is not a new law that merits us salvation at all. But then we go, but Chad, didn't, didn't we talk about, I mean, haven't you talked about a zillion times that the Reformation, the Reformation justification comes by faith alone? Doesn't that mean that faith is what saves us? Yes, we receive salvation or justification by faith alone. That is true. Yes, we do. But faith is only the instrument through which we receive the unmerited grace of God. In other words, Jesus's death atoned for our sin and we receive forgiveness for our sins and Christ's holiness is imputed or credited to our account through faith. We don't earn justification. Christ does. And Christ did. We don't earn the grace of God by believing the grace of God is a free gift. We receive the free gift by faith. 
When I say faith is an instrument, then I'm saying faith is passive. It's not active. I'm not going out there and claiming my salvation. I'm receiving it. When I say salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, I'm not giving you good advice to keep. See, I think that's the problem. We think the gospel is good advice you should keep. Salvation is only by faith alone. I've got some advice for you. Believe because salvation is only by faith alone. There's your advice. The gospel is not good advice. It's good news. I'm giving you good news to rejoice in, not good advice to keep. Martin Lloyd-Jones said the gospel is good news, not good advice. When we talk about the Christian gospel, often like it's good advice we should keep. This error of making even believing the gospel into a work that merits us favor from God is so easy for us to do. It really is. See, getting news is passive, isn't it? You get good news. What happens? You just receive it, don't you? When somebody comes back and says, we won the war in Iraq, which we haven't, obviously, but we've won the war in Iraq. It's good news. Do we do anything? We just receive it and rejoice in it or we don't. Good advice is this. If you guys would just do this, then this will happen. That's not the gospel. But it's easy for us to live as if and talk about the gospel of this as if it's good advice, giving us one more religious thing to do. It's difficult to accept that we can't do it. It's difficult to believe that God would save us not by our own merits, but by his free grace. It's actually very difficult to believe that. It's difficult to believe that God will have compassion on whom he will and will show mercy to whom he will because we think we're owed something for our goodness. How could God show saving mercy to that wretched homosexual who repented only after living such a disgusting life and yet damn someone like my friend who lived a pretty moral life but never repented? How could that be fair? When we ask that question, we deceive, or I should say, we betray what our real feelings are, don't we, about grace. How could God give the same reward to that person who did all the sinful things I wanted to, but because of my commitment to him, I didn't do it? How is that fair? I wanted to do those things, and I didn't. I was committed. How could God damn someone like me and save someone like that murdering terrorist who repented in faith at the end of their life? Down deep, we think we've earned better. We just do. We think of ourselves like we've earned better. We're trusting in our own righteousness. And you know why we do this? We do this because our gospel is works-based. Our gospel is works-based oftentimes. Down deep, we may not express that verbally, but down deep, our gospel's works-based. And our gospel's works-based because it's man-centered. That's what I really want to get at. Our gospel is often works-based because it's man-centered. In other words, we think in this whole deal, we deserve some sort of credit or glory. Bottom line. That's the bottom line of it all. Why do we want to work for it? 
because we want to have something to boast in when it's all said and done. We want it to be about us. A works-based gospel says God saves those who ultimately deserve it because they were brave enough or smart enough to believe. A works-based gospel thinks God saves us for our own glory or benefit. He saves us to show us he approves of us in some way. He saves us to show us that we are worth embracing. He saves us because we have been approved as those who are deserving. In other words, a works-based gospel sees God as motivated by the welfare of mankind and is demonstrating the worthiness of mankind in the gospel. Do you hear that? Bottom line, a man-centered, works-based gospel thinks that God's ultimate goal is the benefit of mankind and that God's ultimate goal is to show how worthy man is to be saved. And we so often cling to that. But a grace-based gospel is God-centered. The gospel of grace is God-centered. It's the gospel that Jesus and Paul preached. It's the gospel of the Bible. It says that God saves us because he wants to show how glorious he is. Did you hear that? God saves us because he wants to show how glorious he is. A grace-based gospel is one that demonstrates God's unswerving commitment to his own glory through demonstrating his compassion and grace to whom he wills and by demonstrating his justice against whom he will. It is a gospel that says God is not indebted to any man. God owes no man anything. God owes no one. God can justly condemn whoever he wants and can save whoever he wants. You see, God's unswerving loyalty to his own glory is why salvation must be by grace alone. I asked my guys that the other day. Why is it that the God-centeredness of God requires salvation by grace alone? It requires it because somebody else gets the glory if it's not by grace. Man. But God is radically committed to himself. And as a result of that is committed to us. Because grace, because if salvation was owed to us for any reason, including what some consider their own good work of believing, it would not be grace. And if it was not grace, but a good work on our part, then we can boast and receive the glory rather than God. Can't we? Now, after all that, I want you to see that this is what the Jews did not understand about Paul's gospel message. This is what the Jews did not understand about Paul's gospel message. Paul goes about destroying the expectation that the Jews had. The Jews thought God owed them something. They thought his promises to them in the Old Testament were that they would all be saved because he was seeking the welfare of Israel. So they thought their salvation was secured and that God owed them. And Paul just absolutely destroys that expectation in Romans 2. Absolutely destroys it. He's told the church in Rome at this point that all men need the gospel to be saved. 
Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Jew first and also the Greek. What's his point? The way everyone is saved, everyone, whether Jew or Gentile, that's everyone, is through the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Why? For in it the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, in the gospel is where you receive the foreign righteousness of God. And why do you need that? Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness have suppressed the truth. Because all men are damned in their wickedness. God has made himself clearly revealed to them in nature and in their hearts, and they have rejected him. Every single last one of them. So every one of them needs the gospel of salvation by grace. Everyone. And then he goes on and lists all these sins, primarily targeting the Gentiles, their paganism, their homosexuality, their complete rejection of God, their disobedience to parents, their murdering, their gossip. And he just lists their one sin after another. And at the end of that says that they deserve death and they know it. And the Jews are on the sideline going, amen, brother. Those Gentiles are dirty. They're nasty. They're sinful. They're liberal. They're godless. And they ought to be damned. You're right. And Paul comes after them. And he says this interesting statement to the Jews. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, do the very same things. Hear that? Those Paul replies that all the benefits you Jews have, all of them, that you're clinging to, whether it be the fact that you're the people of God, whether it be the fact that you have the law, whether it be the fact that you have circumcision, All of those things add up to nothing if there isn't an internal transformation by the power of the Spirit done by God's grace alone. If that doesn't happen, if you don't cling to the Messiah, to Christ, because of an internal transformation done by God's Spirit in which He causes in you a love for Jesus, in which He causes in you a desire to repent and a knowledge that you Your only hope is Jesus. If that doesn't happen, all that other stuff isn't to your advantage. It's worthless. It's worthless, Jews. Because you're sinners just like the rest of them. Those things were just pointing you to. So in chapter 3, verse 1, he's devastated them and they answer, then what's the advantage of being a Jew? What advantage is the Jew? If those dirty Gentiles who lived such unrighteous, ridiculously sinful, godless lives are just as likely or in this historical picture are in larger numbers being wrought out by the work of the spirit, being wrought out in their hearts are being converted to faith in Christ. If that's happening in larger numbers among them, in spite of all they've done. By the grace of God, and all of us Jews over here are rejecting him. 
then what was the point of all those promises? How is it advantageous at all to be Jews? That's what their question is. How is that advantageous? And Paul responds, much in every way. And in chapter 9, he goes into a long list, but here he gives one. Firstly, or chiefly, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. You have the word of God. You've heard the gospel. You've heard it. They didn't. That's an advantage. And now they are. Your advantage was that you heard the gospel. You had the word. You heard the promises of God. That was your advantage. Not that you were promised salvation, but that you heard the word. And they said, well, what if some are unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? I mean, how do we know God isn't unfaithful to us then? Because it seems like he promised us salvation. You see, they just don't get it. They think somewhere in there, in those promises, that their guarantee of salvation was part of it. They think that's part of it. Paul responds, may it never be said that God is unfaithful. God is always true. See that? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. God is always true. Men lie, God doesn't, by his very nature. He goes on to say, you have the promise all wrong. Look, here's the problem for the Jews. You have the promise all wrong. Therefore, you think God's being unfaithful. God is being perfectly faithful to his promise. He's always said, that's what Paul wants them to know. God has always said that he will righteously judge those who sin. Always. Always said that. Even David knows he deserves judgment. And that's who Paul quotes here. Though everyone were a liar as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevailed when you are judged. God is talking about the experience of David, King David, the man after God's own heart, whom he covenanted with to bring his king, the Messiah, through his line. He's talking about him. He said, even David knew that he deserved judgment for his sin. Even David knew that God did not promise him that by virtue of being a Jew and being circumcised and having the covenants, even David knew that that did not guarantee his salvation, but he deserved judgment for his sin. That's nothing new. I've always promised to judge you if you're in sin. I never promised to save every Jew. That's what God's communicating through Paul. So what did he promise? And what was the promise then? God promised he would bring glory to his own name. Hear that? God's promise to the Jews is, I will bring glory to my own name by showing mercy and compassion to whom I will and by showing judgment to whom I will. That was his promise. God's promise is not to save man or judge man for man's sake, but for the sake of his own name and glory. God's promise was not to seek the welfare of Israel for its own sake, but to seek seek the welfare of Israel for his own name's sake. In other words, God is radically God-centered. He'll be glorified in salvation or in damnation. Either way, God will be glorified. 
If you want some evidence for that promise before we jump into this text specifically, look at Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. Moses is with the Lord, receiving the commandments, etc. The Lord wants them to leave Sinai. He goes up on the mountain in verse 18 is where we'll start. Because the Lord wants Moses to go. And he says, I'll be with you. And Moses says, yeah, I only go if you are with me. And then Moses goes on and says this in verse 18. Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And here's the Lord's response. I will make all my goodness. Mark that word goodness. It's the same word as righteousness that Paul's dealing with in Romans chapter 3. All my righteousness, goodness, pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Do you hear that? What's the Lord going to do? I'm going to pass before you, Moses, and I'm going to show you all my righteousness and I'm going to proclaim my name, the Lord. Is that an interesting thing for the Lord to do? To pass by and say, the Lord I'm great. I'm magnificent. Look at me. See my glory. And how is he going to show them his righteousness? Look what it says. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Look down at chapter 34. Keep going down to verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses. It's Moses here with him there. And what did the Lord do? It's where the Lord starts to do this. He proclaimed the name of the Lord. It's the Lord did. He proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Hear that? The Lord is saying this about himself. He's interested in his glory. He's interested in his own name being exalted. And that's why he will show grace to whom he will. And he will show justice to whom he will for the purpose of exalting his own name. Look at Isaiah chapter 48. Just keep going and we'll make our way back to Romans here. Isaiah chapter 48. And look at verse 9. He's talking about in verse 8 how he will, the Lord is saying, this is the Lord speaking, how he will give his people a covenant. I'll give you a covenant. And then in verse 9 he says this, the covenant saying to the prisoners, saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear, they shall feed along the ways on all, excuse me, I'm in verse 49, I have chapter 49 look at verse 9 of chapter 48 i think you guys did for my name's sake i defer my anger the lord saying for my name's sake i defer my anger why does he defer his neighbor anger for his name's sake for the sake of my praise i restrain it for you that i may not cut you off why does god restrain his anger 
for the sake of his name. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Here the Lord's interested in. He's radically God-centered. God's promise has always been to glorify his own name in salvation. Therefore, salvation has always been by grace. It's always been by grace. It must be or man can get some glory. We want it to be about us and not God, so we include some credit for us. That's essentially what the Jews are objecting to in verses 5 through 8. Paul, you're saying this is all about God. Look at their two objections they offer. If God's, if God's shown to be glorious or righteous in judging us or saving us, then what difference does it matter what we do? Look, at, look what they say, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, if it's demonstrating His glory in judging or saving, then what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Here's, here's their question. God is unrighteous then in judging us because, or in saving us. He's unrighteous for doing anything with our sin because our sin serves to glorify Him. If you're right, if you're right, then the more sinful we are, then guess what? What happens when God saves us? The more grace He gets to show. So why not sin more so that God gets to show more grace and is more glorified. If you're right, Paul, then our sin gets to show, more sin gets to show more justice and God is demonstrating wrath. So if that's true, then why not sin more so God can show more justice and get glory? It's their question. And Paul puts in parentheses there because his first beginning, the beginning part of his objection is interesting. Interesting. I speak in a human way. I want you to know, Paul says, that I can't even get these words out of my mouth without qualifying. This is not anywhere near the doctrine that I'm teaching. I speak in a human way. And then he goes on and gives the strongest negative he can. By no means. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? How could God judge the world? He reminds them that they've always believed God will judge the world. They've always believed that. And that it should be no surprise to them that God is shown to be righteous in that. Listen, is it a surprise? Can a criminal go to a judge and go, Your Honor, in condemning me for my crime and righteously condemning me for my crime, you get to show what a just judge you are, so why hold my crime against me? You shouldn't be mad at me at the end of the day because you get to show what a just judge you are, so I shouldn't be in trouble anymore. I'm off the hook, right? Because I've shown up how just you are. That's ridiculous, isn't it? It's essentially the question they're asking of God. Then the Jews, the Jews then go on and give a second objection. Look at verse 6, or excuse me, verse 7. And Paul's speaking for them here. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory... Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying. Why does Paul say my lie causes God's truth to abound to his glory? The word lie there is parallel to the word unrighteousness. We lie whenever we think that we can, that we can trust anybody but Christ. We lie whenever we reject God, don't we? 
We lie all the time. And he says, well, but if my lie causes his truth or his righteousness to abound to his glory, if it causes him to give him more glory, then why not do more of it? Why am I condemned and why not continue in it? Gives him glory. Paul responds that he's actually being accused of saying this. In other words, Paul's gospel is so radically God-centered and so radically about grace and so removes so removes any possibility for man to boast in anything he does in his salvation that some people are going, you know what, Paul? You're teaching a gospel that essentially says God's responsible for everything. He saves whom he wants and he judges whom he wants. You're teaching that gospel. So we have no responsibility then? Why would God judge us? That's what he's being accused of. Why not just be, why not God, why not your God and your gospel in that gospel? Why not have your God just be happy that we're sinning because he gets to show, he gets to show his saving mercy and he gets to show his justice. Why not? I mean, that's the kind of gospel. It's so aggressive that it comes up again in Romans chapter six. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He's preaching so much grace that people go, well, maybe we should continue in sin. I mean, he's Paul in our minds may be teaching grace to an extent. And it's certainly in the Jews to an extent that seemed reckless. Goes on in Romans nine. It pops up again. What shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then they come to verse 19 of Romans 9. You'll say to me, then why does God still find fault? Who can resist his will? You know what Paul's response is? Who are you, a man, to talk back to God? You know what Paul's response is in chapter 6 after he says, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. You know what response is here? By no means. If you even think of God in that sort of term, your condemnation is just. That's his whole response. Because they think that the gospel of the free grace of God and saving whom he wills and condemning whom he wills is too God-centered, their condemnation is just. They think that if God will glorify his own name through saving whom he will and judging whom he will, then what's the motivation for ever doing good? What's the point of it? God doesn't reward, reward me for what I do, then what's the point of being good? Doesn't my good earn me something? See, this is where the Christian gospel is radically different. This is where our gospel flips the whole value system of the world on its head. The gospel says God is deeply and passionately committed to his own glory and will therefore save whom he wills. In so doing, he will receive all the glory. God can save some wretched, sinful, God-hating heathen, or he could save some pious religious type. Often we'll see the heathen getting saved. 
Why? Why? You want me to throw another one at you? Because they recognize they need it. Leads to my last point. There's really two kinds of lostness. Okay? Two kinds of lostness in the world. There are those who are lost because they're living wildly. Some of you were them. Right? And there are those who are lost because they're living self-righteously. And some of you are them. Tim Keller does a great job of showing how this comes out loud and clear in the parable of the two sons. What's the parable of the two sons? I've heard of the parable of the prodigal son, but I've never heard the parable of the two sons. We often call it the parable of the prodigal son, don't we? But really, that's not what Jesus calls it. Look at Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We're going to look at the two kinds of lostness real quick. I want you to look at chapter 15, verse 1. First, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Hear that? That's the group, first group. That's the wild living group. The tax collectors and sinners, the prostitutes. And what were they doing? They were drawing near to Christ. And the Pharisees and the scribes, that's the self-righteous ones, the religious types. They were grumbled, they grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. What's that about? Jesus tells them two parables and then look down at the third one, verse 11. And he said this, Jesus is responding, he says this. There was a man who had two sons. Hear that? Two sons. Let me tell you the parallels between these two sons. They represent two kinds of lostness. In this passage, Jesus spends about the same amount of time on each son, although most of the time we only spend it on the first one, the prodigal, right? Spends about the same amount of time on both sons. Both sons are lost. Both sons are searched for by the father, both of them. The first son is lost through licentiousness, radical, wild living. That's how he's lost. He wants what the father has. So he takes it and lives wildly. You know who he corresponds to? In Romans, he corresponds to the Gentiles, doesn't he, in chapter 1? And in this passage, he corresponds to the tax collectors and sinners, Luke 15. The second son, he's lost through his own moralism, through his own self-righteousness. He wants what the father has also. Same thing, both sons want it. They both want what the Father has. They're both just trying to get it two different ways. Their sin is the same, essentially. So he tries to get it by his good deeds. He corresponds to the Jews in this passage, the Pharisees and scribes, and he corresponds to the Jews more specifically in Romans. So let's look at the son, the first son, what motivates him how he comes to the end of himself and desires only the father and how the father responds. Look at it with me. Verse 12. And the younger of the two sons or the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So the son comes right out of the gate. The younger son. this is the most obnoxious thing he could have done in this culture. Basically saying, I want my inheritance now, which means I want you dead now. I don't want you. 
I want what you have to offer me. Give it to me. It's one of the most insulting things a son could have possibly done in the culture. And so the father divides his property between them. Gives the son his part. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. Just took off. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Hear that? And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. This guy wants to eat with the pigs and he's working with the pigs. This is a guy who has basically said to his father, death to you, give me my stuff, I'm out of here. He goes off, he lives the most wild, reckless life. Later on in the parable, spending all his father's money on prostitutes. And ends up with pigs about as low as a Jew could possibly think one could get. He hit what we call rock bottom. Bottomed out for him. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hungry, hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Basically, he repented. He recognized that this sinful life was just destroying him. He recognized it. And he didn't want the stuff anymore. He just wanted his dad. I don't even deserve to be your son. Just let me be around you. Let me be a hired hand. I recognize that I ought to be just after you, Dad. I don't want my glory anymore. I just want yours. And I know that in that you'll care for me. What's amazing is this. He came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. It's an absolutely, completely abhorrent picture to a Jew. What do you mean? This son has disgraced the family in the greatest possible way. And the father's out looking for him. And the father sees him and has compassion on him. And he goes running out to him and he has to pull up his man dress to do it. In which while he's running across this city, he is exposed and shamed because he's running to embrace his son. And he's willing to be humiliated to go back to the son who despised him and wanted him dead. What a stupid man in most of our minds. What a stupid, stupid father is that? Don't you realize he's going to take advantage of you again? He got his chance. You're going to shame and humiliate yourself for him? You're going to run after him and embrace him and kiss him all over after he's been with pigs? Do you understand what you're doing? And he goes further to add insult to injury. And the son said to him, Father, 
I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your servant. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Bring me the best robe you have and put it on him. And put on, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Hear what he's saying? Give him my honor. And bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. He didn't punish him. He deserves it and he knew he deserved it, but he didn't do it. He extended grace to him. Because he repented, he realized all he wanted was his father. And you know what? When he ran and he turned to go to the father, he found out all along the father was seeking him. And the father's the one that ran out to him and grabbed him and brought him in and rewarded him. Think about that. Rewarded him for what? For being in disgrace? Does that son really deserve any honor or glory in that? No. The father does, doesn't he? All of it. Who's the gracious one in this picture? The father, right? Look at the second son. Now his older son was in the field, the older brother. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what, the, and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father's killed the fatted calf because he received him back safe and sound. And what's the brother's response? But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Isn't that interesting? In both cases, the father goes out. Here's the second brother. You know what he's done? He's sought the father's stuff differently than the first brother has. He sought it by staying home, being a good boy, keeping the law, doing everything his father asked. That's how he sought his father's favor, and that's how he sought his father's stuff. His ultimate conclusion was the same. I just want my father's stuff. I don't want him. And I want glory for it. That was the ultimate goal. Same as the other brother. But you know what? The other brother recognized after all his sin, he didn't deserve it. And the, young, or excuse me, the younger brother did, and the older brother thought he did. I deserve it. He doesn't. I do. I'm angry that you're giving it to him. And look what he goes on and says. His father came out and entreated him just like with the younger brother. He went out to him. The father seeking here comes out and he seeks him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. Translation, by the way, in the Greek, I have slaved for you. No joyful obedience here, is there? I've done everything you've asked. Look what he says. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. I did everything you asked, and you never gave me anything. He was a sinner, but when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, listen to the father's graciousness here. Son, you're always with me and all that I have or all that is mine is yours. Don't you understand? You're grasping for my stuff. 
you're with me, what I have is yours. Give it to you too. But don't discard me to get it. Don't think you're owed it as you're due. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Any of you guys sympathize with the older brother? Honestly. You ever sympathize with him? He's done everything right. What's the point of all my hard work if you're going to show such lavish grace to my sinful brother? What's the point of it all? Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon, tells a story about a carrot farmer. He uh, went and farmed and produced this incredible carrot, best carrot he ever made. It's a little poor carrot farmer, almost no land. It's not a true story, he made it up. Little, he made this incredible carrot, and he said, you know what I want to do? I want to take this carrot and give it to my father, my king. So he goes to the king, and he beseeches the king. He says, king, you are such a great king, and I just want to honor you by giving you this carrot. It's the best carrot I've ever produced. And the king says to him, he sa- the king discerns his heart. The king discerns his heart and finds that he just wants to honor him. He's not looking for anything in return. The king says to him, I'll tell you what, because you sought to honor me, you can have three times the amount of land you currently have. It's yours. You could have it. Another man was in the room when it happened, and he thought to himself, wow, he got all that for a carrot. What could I get for one of my best horses? So he goes back, picks out the best horse he has, comes back to the king. My king, I want to honor you with my greatest horse. It's it's my most prized possession. The king looks at the horse, says thank you, and takes the horse. You can go. And the servant says, well, king, that guy brought you a carrot and you gave him all this farmland. I bring you a great horse and you don't give me anything. And he says, no, that guy brought me a carrot. That guy brought me a carrot. You brought you a horse. The sin of both brothers is the same. Both wanted what the father had to offer, but neither really wanted him. They had tried, the way they tried to achieve it was different. But in the case of the second brother, God came out to him and said, all I have is yours. And the brother didn't want the father's grace. He wanted his due. The younger brother wanted the father's grace. You know, we need to stop looking around at others and assuming we're better than them and thus more deserving in some sick way of God's grace than they are. It's bottom line. Even now you're wondering, doesn't God promise more treasure to those who are faithful? I mean, doesn't God do something for all this? You want to perform and be rewarded for it. More importantly, you certainly don't want others worse than you to get as good as rewards as you do. Honestly, do you? Why? Because we all want some glory in this deal, and we don't want God to get all the glory. We want some of it. Until we pharisaical types are humbled and recognize that we are no different than those who are living wildly. Did you hear that? We are no different than those who are living wildly. 
We're just trying to get the same thing in a different way. Until we recognize that God saves by his grace alone and not because of our works, we'll look down our nose at unbelievers and we'll fill our churches with more pharisaical types who are able to keep the gospel law and who are unsaved and don't know it. When we do repent and look to Jesus and his grace, our churches will begin to attract the same kind of people that Jesus attracted. Those who know they don't deserve anything but condemnation, yet are now rejoicing in the free gift of salvation that's theirs in Christ. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that you are God-centered and that you have extended your grace to us. And Lord, that you get all the glory and honor for it. Lord, make us people who truly seek you and your honor, who don't desire credit. Lord, make us people who are humble, people who when we look around at those who may be living wildly when we're not, don't look down our nose at them, Lord, but we feel compassion for them because they're lost. And we recognize, Lord, that without your grace, we would be in the same place, maybe not seeking it the same way they are, but lost just the same. Let us be a church that understands that and that proclaims the gospel of God's grace to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.